It is my great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Dr. Sarah E. Igo. She is an associate professor at, of history, political science, sociology, and law at Vanderbilt College of Arts and Science, where she is also the director of the American Studies Program. She received her AB in Social Studies from Harvard University and her PhD in History from Princeton University. Dr. Igo's first book, The Averaged American, Surveys, Citizens, and the Making of a Mass Public, found in our circulating collection, elucidates how surveys, community studies, and scientific analysis inform American sense of themselves, both as individuals and as citizens. It was an editor's choice selection of the New York Times and one of Slate's best books of 2007, in addition to being the winner of both the President's Book Award of the Social Science History Association and the Chiron Book Prize. She was awarded a New Directions Fellowship from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Richard S. Dunn Award for Distinguished Teaching. Uh, she has plenty more distinctions to her credit, but I was asked to keep this introduction short, so please forgive the rather attenuated list of achievements. Uh, but this evening, Dr. Igo discusses her newest book, The Known Citizen, A History of Privacy in Modern America. We as Americans are continually making decisions about our privacy, what to share and when, how much to expose, and to whom. But how did privacy come to loom so large in American life? The Known Citizen offers the first wide-angle view of privacy as it has been lived and imagined by modern Americans. So now, please join me in giving a warm Athenaeum welcome to Dr. Sarah E. Igo. Thank you so much, Arnold. Um, can you hear me all right? Yes, okay, wonderful. Uh, thank you very much for that kind introduction um, and to the rest of you for being here on such a beautiful uh, spring evening. Uh, it's a true pleasure to be here speaking at the Athenaeum um, and um, I'll just say that I realize I have an uphill battle here this evening uh, because it's so hard these days to get people uh, interested in privacy. I was joking about that. <laughs> this is just a small sampling of uh, some of the books um, that have arrived uh, in the last decade or so, uh, charting our concern and our fear about privacy. I think it's fair to say, in fact, uh, that we are, as a culture right now, uh, consumed by thinking about and talking about privacy. Uh, indeed, one challenge in writing this um, book, writing about privacy, uh, has been keeping up with a deluge of books and articles and scandals um, about privacy. So I became interested in the history of privacy a long time ago. Um, I was intrigued by the way something we talk about as self-evident and stable was in fact uh, far more slippery and changeable. Um, as I've discovered, it really is a concept in constant turmoil, even if we don't think about it generally that way. So it's been funny, uh, given the current raft of privacy scandals, that people keep congratulating me on uh, how timely this book is. All I can think about is how long I've been thinking about this. Um, but to many people, uh, privacy is newly uh, on their agenda and on their minds. Um, so perhaps I should offer my thanks to Equifax uh, and to Facebook 
and Cambridge Analytica, um, not to mention uh, the Ancestry websites and DNA banks uh, that helped uh, just last week or the week before uh, pinpoint the Golden State Killer. But actually, I think uh, the quandary that we're in is much broader uh, and much deeper than today's news. Um, and this is in part the argument of my book uh, that across the last century, privacy has, for good um, and also quite complicated reasons, moved right to the core of American public life. Today, securing the boundary uh, between one's private affairs and one's public identity is one of the most routine and yet also urgent tasks that we exercise as citizens. In this sense, privacy in the modern United States has not really been private at all. It's been a very public um, concern and more and more public in a way all the time. So how did we get here? Um, my book has been an attempt to wrestle uh, with that question and I will um, tell you a little bit about how I've been thinking about that. So I'm going to begin in perhaps an odd place, uh, and that's with uh, a British poet, W.H. Uh, Auden. Um, I took my title uh, for my book from his poem, uh, adapted it from his poem, and, and some inspiration um, from it as well. Uh, the poem is Auden's um, The Unknown Citizen uh, from 1939. He wrote it soon after uh, emigrating from Great Britain to the United States. And the poem is written uh, in the form of a state epitaph for an unknown, but actually all too knowable citizen. And I've only reprinted a little bit of it here. Um, if you're intrigued by the whole poem, um, you can find it easily. Um, but Auden in the poem details uh, the array of agencies that presume to know uh, the anonymous in individual in question. Uh, his union, his hospital, his school, uh, his insurers, and also the marketers and the journalists and the pollsters and the statisticians. Auden asks, um, just in those very last lines, was he free? Was he happy? The question is absurd. Had anything been wrong, we should certainly have heard. So it's a sardonic poem, obviously, um, and it's wonderful uh, for reflecting on the conditions of modern privacy. And to me, this is precisely because it focuses us on something beyond uh, the major scandals that grab headlines and spark outrage, however temporary that outrage uh, may be. Auden's words alert us to something both more mundane and more complex, uh, and to me more uh, fascinating. Um, and that is the shifting boundary uh, between citizens and the society that they inhabit and particularly the society that developed in the United States across the last century, modern, democratic, capitalist, and information-hungry. So my book uh, is titled, Not the Unknown Citizen, but the Known Citizen, um, and it charts uh, how and why privacy became such a fixture, um, and even a fixation, of US culture in those years. The growth of the central state uh, and social institutions is part of the answer, along with the creation of ever more sophisticated technologies of surveillance. But the larger story I tell is the emergence of what I call a knowing society, one that sought to govern, understand, and minister to its members by scrutinizing them in fuller and finer detail, often with the support and cooperation of those same citizens. 
What I found compelling, um, but also quite challenging uh, as a historian, is that the story of the known citizen, um, once you start looking for it, uh, cuts across so many, uh, maybe all, uh, the domains of modern social life. Across the 20th century, after all, uh, Americans became known in modern fashion by state bureaucracies and law enforcement agents, of course, but also by the popular press, by advertisers and marketers, by private corporations and financial institutions, by scientific researchers and psychological experts, by their own workplaces and schools, and most recently, by data aggregators and proprietary algorithms. The proliferation of techniques for making citizens knowable and legible, uh, whether through credit reports or personality tests, wiretaps or CCTV cameras, could offer um, opportunity and security. But being known too well, uh, for instance, through the monitoring of one's consumption habits or physical movements, could also uh, threaten personal autonomy and undermine the notion of a freestanding individual that is uh, so foundational to US politics and society. So a knowing society carried uh, promises, but of course it also carried um, perils for citizens. Um, and it's worth saying that uh, citizens could also suffer uh, from too much privacy as well as too little. This is something we don't tend to think about too much. But being legible to society's authorities could uh, disempower people in some uh, contexts, but also privilege them in others. Um, for example, uh, being identifiable to the Social Security Administration or to the census was a quite different matter than being traceable in a national criminal database. So these things um, cut in different ways and different contexts. I also want to make clear um, that this story of the known citizen is not simply one of invasions and violations of surveillance and spying, which is why those uh, book covers that I showed you right at the beginning um, miss something critical. Americans have uh, also um, wanted to know and to be known, whether for entertainment and connection, security or convenience, public health or social benefits, scientific discovery, or self-understanding. And Americans regularly made themselves known through new communications platforms, uh, such as the telephone and even the postcard in the 19th century, just as much as they did through psychotherapy or confessional memoirs or reality TV or social media in the 20th and 21st centuries. Put more strongly, Americans have often demanded privacy but they have also sometimes simultaneously insisted on recognition, on being known accurately and authentically and on their own terms. So the history of the known citizen, as I see it, is quite winding and unpredictable. Uh, it doesn't always wind up where you expect. But the questions it raises are enduring, and they're obviously ones uh, that we are still working on. How much should a society be able to glean about the lives of its own members? What aspects of a person are worth knowing and to whom? And which aspects are truly one's own? And who or what uh, should remain unknown? So uh, those are the big questions. Um, and now I want to um, pull out uh, and take you through just a few episodes in this history. 
So when does modern privacy begin? Uh, that's probably an impossible question. Um, but I begin, I'll say, uh, in the 1890s, uh, very uh, tail end of the 19th century. This was a period in which, um, when, sorry, a period when uh, Victorian norms of propriety and respectability collided uh, with a set of new technologies, uh, mass media technologies, communication technologies, really what we can see as the new media of the day. Uh, and these would prompt the first modern call for a right to privacy. Now, uh, before the Civil War, most Americans seemed to have understood privacy as closely linked to their property lines uh, and the circumstances of their immediate physical environment. It was a very propertied notion of privacy. But beginning in the late 19th century, a rapid series of innovations in journalism and communications seemed to place privacy newly in danger. And in this way, uh, the resemblance to our own time is striking um, and even eerie sometimes uh, when you read uh, critics from this period. Um, you have here a couple of images, um, the first of uh, a new genre of literature uh, from this period, uh, wire thrillers uh, about the possibility of people intruding in and intercepting communications, um, and also um, a, um, a visualization of what uh, the telephone lines were making possible in terms of the reach of communications in this era. Um, in particular, um, privacy debates would be stirred up by um, technologies that made possible virtual invasions. Uh, so not a peeping Tom, but a kind of virtual look into other people's private affairs. Uh, telegraph lines uh, and telephone wires um, introduced the possibility of wiretapping and interception. Um, and um, what contemporaries called instantaneous photography um, allowed a different kind of invasion, the invasion or capture of someone else's um, image uh, unawares. The new porousness of communications um, was raised first uh, by a rather innocent technology, the postcard, uh, which went on sale first uh, in New York City in 1873. Um, the postcard seemed to some to compromise uh, the privacy of the males. Um, they were enormously popular with consumers. About 200,000 of them sell uh, in the first two hours that they're on offer for sale but they are vigorously critiqued by a whole host of different um, parties for changing the terms of disclosure, um, with etiquette guides scolding letter writers for opening up their private affairs to public view, um, right? There's no envelope. Uh, telegraphy um, also posed uh, what is now a very familiar uh, trade-off uh, between convenience and privacy, leading one historian to label the telegraph network the Victorian internet. Um, sending a telegram, of course, uh, required the disclosure of the contents of one's message to a third party, uh, and companies kept copies, uh, which might exist in three or four separate locations at any one time. Um, telegrams were also subject to uh, government subpoena, and there's a big uh, debate, uh, ongoing debate about this over the last couple uh, decades of the 19th century, whether telegrams were the same as mail or different, and whether the same rules should apply. Um, there will be even more worry uh, over the introduction of the telephone as a, um, a consumer um, uh, communications rather than a business one. Uh, it launched, according the telephone launched, according to one observer, once and for all, this is a quote, an era of electronic exhibitionism and voyeurism. There you hear the eerie echo into our own time. 
Uh, telephones like the telegraph um, allowed wiretapping by both criminals and police. Um, it also allowed for uh, overheard uh, conversations from telephone operators and, of course, um, the party lines where neighbors um, regularly listened in on one another's conversations. But this was not the end of um, the uh, disruption around privacy in the late 19th century. Um, the newly aggressive commercial press, um, shown here from uh, Puck uh, magazine, was another. Um, and it's actually innovations in journalism coupled with photography that will create the first real modern crisis around privacy. The press, uh, photography, and publicity merged in new ways in the late 19th century. Metropolitan dailies and mass market magazines um, that pried and poked especially into elite affairs seemed to threaten an old order and um, established class lines um, and norms. Cameras uh, were central to this shift. Uh, photography, as you may know, had been slow and cumbersome um, before the 1880s. Subjects had to sit for their photo and sit still. Uh, they couldn't really be caught unawares. Um, but this will change uh, quite rapidly with the development of, again, what contemporaries called instantaneous photography. Um, in 1880, um, the first newspaper halftones uh, were published, that is, uh, newspapers um, being able to reprint uh, photographs. Amateur photography will blossom uh, with uh, the introduction of Kodak uh, brownie cameras and earlier models as well. <laughs> that if you can read that, it could be operated by any schoolboy or girl. Um, and a whole range of new devices, <laughs> um, detective cameras, um, uh, also came on offer, uh, explicitly for the purpose of uh, allowing uh, surreptitious photo taking. Um, Kodak fiends uh, will be a phrase uh, that enters the vernacular by 1890. Uh, and there will be regulations quickly placed on the use of cameras in the White House, on railroad lines and ferries, and private property. So in the 1890s, as today, uh, new technologies and cultural practices uh, seem to make matter-of-fact expectations about privacy obsolete, or at least it placed them in question. Um, according to two Boston lawyers uh, who would become famous uh, for their um, writings on privacy, uh, Samuel Warren there on the left and Louis Brandeis on the right, um, they wrote in 1890 um, that novel methods of intrusion, instantaneous photography, and a prurient newspaper enterprise had invaded the sacred precincts of private and domestic life overstepping the obvious bounds of propriety and decency. Warren and Brandeis uh, would author what would become a watershed article in the Harvard Law Review um, on the right to privacy. And they made here really uh, what was the first modern legal argument for what they called a right to be let alone. This was their definition of privacy. They endorsed a version of privacy that went far beyond mere property rights by calling for a shield around something that they called the inviolable personality. They were concerned, chiefly, Warren and Brandeis, about protecting elite standards of propriety and men of reputation um, from an aggressive commercial press. 
But the call for a right to be let, uh, a right to be let alone and a right to one's personality and image would resonate far beyond their class or their concern. It surfaced especially in outrage over candid photographs. Um, and in fact, some of the very first right to privacy suits brought in state courts would be brought by women uh, whose likenesses were used without their authorization to advertise products. Women, as you might expect, were much more often the subject of surreptitious photographs than were men. Um, a couple of examples uh, here. Uh, on the left uh, is Marion Manola, a stage actress who was photographed in tights, she charged, um, in one of her performances, surreptitiously, um, and um, then saw her image circulated um, beyond um, that moment of being on the stage. Uh, and so she brought suit for the circulation of her image without her permission. Another uh, case uh, from 1902 uh, centered on a complaint against Franklin Mills Flower, which you can sort of see there. Um, the plaintiff was Abigail uh, Marie Roberson, um, and she cited the making and then displaying in stores, saloons, and other public venues of 25,000 uh, lithographic prints, photographs, and likenesses of herself without her knowledge or prior consent. Um, in fact, uh, it turns out that Roberson had only learned of the advertising campaign when she glimpsed her own face uh, on a neighbor's bag of flour. So Roberson charged um, that these advertisements uh, was still uh, relatively uh, uncommon for someone's uh, face or image to enter into commercial trade, and it was considered um, disgraceful um, by people of a certain class. She charged that the advertisements and their viewing by acquaintances caused her great distress and suffering in both body and mind. A sympathetic lower court uh, would acknowledge the novelty of the claim, but it would still rule in her favor, judging her right of privacy violated. The case will later go on to be overturned, and there's great outrage in New York City uh, where the case takes place, but it will be the first step um, toward many state privacy laws about um, possession of one's own image and rights uh, to one's image. So the question that Roberson posed uh, was who had the right to possess or consume or to share one's image or likeness, or for that matter, to play havoc with one's reputation. These were questions hatched more than a century ago and that we are, of course, in many ways still asking. So I want to move uh, to talking about a different aspect of privacy debates, um, also uh, stemming um, here uh, from another new technology of the 1890s, fingerprinting. Fingerprinting and allied um, methods of documentation uh, raised a different set of concerns about the known citizen. Concerns not about publicity, uh, but about identification and tracking. So I want to turn to the rise of the administrative state in the early decades of the 20th century, which heightened anxieties about the government's capacity to catalog and monitor its citizens. The FBI uh, had tracked criminals and dissidents um, rather uh, uh, effectively uh, during World War I. But there will be a pivot um, in the 1920s and 1930s um, from criminals' uh, documentation to the documentation of everyone, um, of upstanding citizens as well. Um, you can see this in the rise of a regime of passports, of birth certificates, 
um, and uh, campaigns that failed, but nevertheless were attempted for universal fingerprinting and also uh, for documentation for the purpose of social benefits programs. So one um, key, if originally inadvertent method of monitoring citizens by the federal government uh, was the 1935 establishment of the Social Security Administration and the issuing of unique identifying numbers to those covered by the program, the Social Security number. This was a novel and ambitious venture of the federal government. Um, indeed, uh, the sheer scope of the bookkeeping effort that Social Security required, the uh, weight and space requirements both, um, were such that the Social Security Board determined that there was no building in Washington large enough or strong enough for the new agency and all of those files on workers. And so uh, for the first decades of its history, Social Security is housed here, which if you can see in that somewhat fuzzy image, uh, was a uh, Coca-Cola bottling plant originally um, in Baltimore, the Candler Building. Uh, the issuing of Social Security numbers almost instantly raised questions about the tracking of employees and union troublemakers, blacklisting and such. Uh, it also raised questions about what would happen to the sensitive information that those files contained on workers' age, their ethnicity often read from a surname. Um, their marital status um, or their religion, again, often inf not asked for but inferred from the files. Um, social security numbers would also be susceptible to very early versions of identity theft. Um, I have found um, cases as early as 1937. Um, so there were these worries um, that came along with social security. However, um, I want to stress that this was not a straightforward story of citizens feeling that their privacy was invaded by the federal government. Visibility to the state carried certain risks in the 1930s, but it offered much greater rewards uh, for most. The issuing of social security numbers would cause some political controversy about um, having to register with the government, but this subsided quite quickly as Americans accommodated themselves to being numbered. The rewards of economic security seemed to outweigh the specter of one's work and financial history being known to the government. In fact, uh, in the 1930s and 1940s, the identifier became for some a proud badge of inclusion in an expanding welfare state, even a mark of economic citizenship and belonging. Although it's hard to fathom now, uh, in the 1930s and 40s and into the 50s even, there was a booming market for bronzed social security uh, number plaques and plates displaying one's individual number. This um, particular advertisement, and I have found many of these, came from the Chicago Defender, um, African-American press. Um, and you can see a bronze plate of your own, a beautiful and serviceable social security number and nameplate, uh, convenient in size and made of lasting bronze metal. Um, there are many different variants of this kind of product, uh, pocket tokens, luggage tags, uh, and the like, always in metal that was more durable and um, dignified uh, than a paper card uh, in your wallet. Uh, some people uh, even had rings and other jewelry imprinted with their unique number, such as the Social Security Sterling Silver Birthstone Ring. 
Um, and some went still further, um, some engraving um, the number on their dentures. I have found a number of cases of that. Um, but others permanently inking their social security number on their thighs or backs or, as with this man, their biceps, in what newspapers heralded as a boon for the tattoo industry. Um, you can find tattoo proprietors, and I found so many of them that I uh, am convinced that this is not just a, 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 you know, a, a loose anecdote, um, thanking Franklin Roosevelt for the uptick in business uh, that um, he gave uh, to them from all the people who wanted their social security number tattooed. Uh, this particular photograph, um, it, some of you may have seen it before, uh, it's uh, one of Dorothea Lange's um, and her documentation of Depression-era workers. Um, and of course, because of the number, we know exactly uh, who this man was and how old he was and when he died. Uh, his name is Thomas Cave and he was from Oregon. Um, but uh, of course, when Thomas Cave uh, had that tattoo uh, placed on his bicep, he would not have um, known the, that kind of durability of that number or what it would reveal about him beyond the grave. Uh, as late as the 1950s, in fact, and this is one of the most interesting things um, uh, for me to discover. I had a very different sense of this before I began this research. Social security numbers had a surprisingly public face. They were broadcast in radio contests, uh, used in missing person advertisements. Uh, uh, people engraved their watches so that if they lost it, someone would be able to return it to them, uh, and printed without objection uh, in the newspaper. Social security uh, tokens, jewelry, and tattoos suggest a desire uh, for being a visible citizen. Being a known citizen um, in that era, the era of the Depression and World War II, certainly, as I've said, raised alarms about the tentacles of the state reaching more deeply into the personal affairs of the populace. But in an age of an increased social provision, being unidentifiable to the state caused perhaps even greater concern. This began to change, um, of course, uh, in the Cold War era. Um, by the middle of the 20th century, the intersection of a full-blown national security apparatus with a host of more intimate forms of prying in suburban communities, in therapists' office, in the white-collar workplace, in the public schools, and in the consumer market would rivet public attention on the invasiveness of American culture itself. Um, much of this uh, tied together by the pressures, felt pressures, of living and working in a psychological society. This was most evident um, in a flurry of scandals in the 1950s, the later 50s, early 60s, around subliminal advertising, um, motivational research, right, using psychotherapeutic kinds of tools to advertise and to um, to know and read consumers, uh, and what contemporaries called brainwatching in a play on brainwashing, also a concern during this period, um, which they, uh, what they meant by that was uh, psychological testing, um, both at work and at school. Here, uh, the worry was not so much about identification, the outer surfaces of the person, 
but the number of agencies who wanted to uh, get inside uh, people, who wanted to probe individuals' minds, psyches, and emotions. Um, so we have here, um, of course, a kind of precursor uh, to Cambridge Analytica. Even as commentators praised in the Cold War era, uh, private home ownership and private life as defining uh, characteristics of the United States uh, versus the Soviet Union in the superpower struggle, new anxieties bloomed about the pressures of new ways of living on the self. This is uh, encapsulated for me uh, in this wonderful cartoon from The New Yorker from, um, I believe it's 1956 or 57. Um, of uh, the vigilance of peers in suburbia, the man on the right, <laughs> being anxiously watched uh, by the other uh, men in gray flannel suits coming home. As sociologist William uh, White wrote in The Organization Man of eight, 1956, quoting a suburbanite, you're never alone even when you think you are. Citizens worried um, more and more about their privacy in the 1950s and 60s, even as they consumed voyeuristic gossip magazines and divulged their secrets to marriage counselors and personality testers, conversing in a newly common psychological language of self-disclosure. Um, and I remind us of that just to um, remind us of the tug, uh, both directions, right, both to hide and to reveal that is part of this history. So new forms of publicity, new kinds of documentation, and new means of invasion, um, all of these began to accrete um, in um, the 1960s. Um, and in the mid-60s, in 1965, um, in response to this growing sense of social pressures on the person, I would argue, uh, privacy gained new status as a constitutional right, as well as a cornerstone of Americans' popular lexicon of entitlements. So the path from suburbia and uh, photography to um, the Supreme Court's ruling in 1965 finding a right of privacy is not direct, but I'm sure it's there. <clears throat> the Supreme Court's ruling in Griswold v. Connecticut overturned a ban on married couples' use of contraception. This is something we associate with a right to bodily integrity and intimacy, perhaps. Um, and this was the, um, that was Estelle Griswold there on the left, um, celebrating the victory of um, the court's decision. Um, but I want to um, point out that um, even though we associate the contraceptive uh, decision with a whole trail of reproductive rights cases, which of course came under the banner of privacy, the way that Griswold was argued by many people in the 1960s uh, was linked um, to the problem of a knowing society. So you see this pamphlet from the um, Connecticut Planned Parenthood League. Um, a policeman in every home is the only way to enforce the contraceptive ban. And there's the policeman with his notebook lying under the bed. <laughs> um, so you can see this in the way that Griswold was framed and understood by contemporaries. Um, many people believed that the birth control case, Griswold, would lead immediately uh, to bans on wiretapping, for example. And you can only understand that connection, I think by understanding their, um, the deep concerns about a knowing society by 1965. 
So Griswold was a victory um, uh, for privacy advocates. Um, and as I've said, many assumed there would be broader privacy protections to come. But uh, as it turned out and was quickly recognized, uh, the fragility of that right in an era of advancing uh, social and uh, social scientific research, uh, government surveillance, and uh, computer data banks, most importantly, meant that privacy concerns would not fade away. Instead, uh, they were aroused anew, ushering in altered norms around confidentiality, consent, and access. So uh, it would be in the 1960s and 1970s, for instance, uh, that citizens first began to mobilize around something they had known in a kind of low-grade fashion since at least the 1930s, that many agencies, public and private, were not just collecting information about them, but were also capable of monitoring their habits and histories in increasingly sophisticated fashion. As the technological and bureaucratic landscape uh, changed, um, along with attitudes toward the state, uh, attitudes towards documentation changed too. Now some of this stemmed from an awareness of newfangled spy gadgets and um, miniaturized surveillance um, devices of various kinds. Um, lots of reports about um, tiny bugs in um, martini olives <laughs> from this era that sort of came from the spy literature of the period. So some of it was coming from that uh, angle. But the real pivot um, that you see in the 1970s uh, was towards something much uh, less glamorous, um, which was data surveillance. So again, I want to just point out, this was not a concern, a uh, concern about data, about reputation or publicity or psychological probing. Um, it was about records. Um, and in its own way, is a kind of prehistory of our present moment. Uh, most Americans, up until uh, the 1960s, paid very little attention uh, to the information about them steadily mounting in the society's file cabinets. In the mid-1960s, rather suddenly, the existence of silent record-keeping systems on private citizens, from credit bureaus to school dossiers, burst into political debate. This is just one of many uh, exposés published in this period, Vance Packard's The Naked Society, 1964. And you get a sense from the table of contents of the range of concerns, the watch over teachers, um, the watch over school uh, students, um, how safe is thy castle, the unlisted price of financial protection, the lively traffic in facts about us. This concern uh, will shift the privacy debate in significant ways toward data protection. New legislation on school records, uh, FERPA, for example, would flow from fears, in one advocate's words, that, quote, test scores, personality profile, and other data that are compiled when a person is six years old can, and usually do, remain on file somewhere for the rest of his life. Computing had something to do with this worry about records, of course. By the late 1960s, uh, for example, um, social security numbers had come into use by a host of public and private agencies and um, were supremely useful in a computer age. 
they were also increasingly recognized as the linchpin of a vast network of data banks that housed personal information about nearly every single adult in the United States. And so you begin to get uh, works like this, the Data Bank Society, um, and tying um, computers to social freedoms. Or in popular magazines like Look, computer data banks, do they know too much about you? along with Ethel's, Kennedy's, and Rosemary's baby. Um, so this was a broad uh, concern, um, ranging across scholarly and popular uh, domains. Uh, and computerization was, of course, central to it. Um, and so, um, Decades after their debut, social security numbers would themselves erupt as a political issue, uh, prompting the creation of a federal task force, multiple congressional hearings, and legislation in the form of the 1974 Privacy Act. Uh, this was the report on the right um, that uh, really uh, undergirded the Privacy Act. But you can see in this um, article to the left, which is from 1965 already, a worry about the compilation of citizens' data in data banks. Um, this was a plan that got scuttled for the National Data Center. But if you can read that, you can see representatives in Congress calling the proposed National Data Center a monster, an octopus, a great expensive electronic garbage pail, um, and one big egg basket where facts now scattered would be gathered. As even Social Security's commissioner would concede, uh, the agency's records constituted quote, one of the world's largest concentrations of personal data, all of it indexed according to SSN, and much of it instantly retrievable from computer records. So the social security number became wrapped in a larger critique of what some called the records prison, a brand new threat to American civil liberties via surveillance by the government, but also private financial insurance and credit agencies of their personal data. Okay, so one of the most unexpected turns um, in the career of the known citizen was a product of this same era. Um, this is Betty Ford uh, after her uh, mastectomy, um, a photograph that was uh, published uh, all over um, the nation and perhaps um, beyond. In the 1970s, um, political demands for transparency exposure and disclosure by one light, uh, privacy's opposites, would begin to redraw the borders between society and citizen. At the very same moment that the social security number was becoming private, closely guarded secrets, sexual, emotional, and autobiographical, and also medical, I should add, were moving out into the open. Americans deliberately breaching codes of pu public propriety by airing personal matters. Now, in the case of Betty Ford, post-Watergate, um, this was a calculation that was both personal and political. It was about transparency to um, lay bare her operation and her health to the public at large. Um, and here she would be a kind of trailblazer, Influenced by the Watergate scandal, the Vietnam War, therapeutic culture, and the era's social movements, many in the 1970s clamored for transparency in law, politics, and even private life. This was a hallmark of the second wave feminist movement, 
which sought to make the violations of intimate life a political issue. But it was also evident in new standards of authenticity in documentary film and on television. This is early Donahue. Um, it was uh, apparent in lawmakers' voluntary, again, post-Watergate, disclosure of their tax returns, which some of them still do, not all of them, <laughs> um, and in journalists' uh, aggressive unmasking of political figures' personal affairs. In 1973, uh, the precursor, uh, the kind of grandfather or grandmother of reality TV aired, um, An American Family, in which uh, television cameras, documentary uh, film uh, makers, uh, came into, invaded the lives, the domestic lives of the Loud family of Santa Barbara, California, and then um, unreeled that life on screen. Just one of many examples of this new ethos uh, or ethic of transparency um, in many different domains of American life. As the 1970s uh, became the 1980s and 1990s, this same ethic was apparent in the emotional tenor of television talk shows, in the outing of gay public figures and celebrities, and in the publishing phenomenon of the 1990s, the confessional memoir. Um, this uh, is uh, Susanna Kaysen's memoir, Girl Interrupted, which came out in 1991, I believe it was. And what was startling uh, to so many people about that memoir, um, which was about her time as an adolescent at McLean Hospital, um, uh, right uh, around the corner here, um, was that she uh, got access to her um, uh, confinement, uh, her, uh, her file, her medical files, and printed them right in the pages of her memoir. The exposure of secrets uh, became, in these years, the very substance, I want to argue, of both politics and identity. Commentators, of course, uh, bewailed the arrival of a confessional culture in which the primary currency was volubility about one's sins and shames, from drug addiction to sexual abuse. By the late 20th century, some critics contended that even more worrisome than improper prying by authorities was this extrusion of personal matters into public places when one commentator lamented that the destruction of privacy is the great collective project of our time, this is what he referred to. Not any external invader, but people's desire to gush. Um, and this, again, a terrific <laughs> New Yorker uh, cartoon that encapsulates this, right? A mother in an attic finding an old diary and her daughter uncomprehending why anyone would have written a diary that nobody else could read. By the late 20th century, uh, some critics contended, uh, oh, I said that, sorry, uh, that uh, what was so worrisome was this improper um, extrusion of personal matters. Uh, one critic uh, pleaded, is there not something to be said for the unexamined life? <laughs> so back in 1890, where we began, um, the New York editor, E.L. Godkin, um, in response to uh, a newly inquisitive census of 1890, um, that year. Uh, he charged that no man, and especially no woman, likes to tell a stranger about a secret disease or disability, 
Um, of course, memoirists a century later were proving him wrong in spades. Americans' seemingly relentless quest for self-exposure in an ever-expanding universe of social media would only cement this complaint. So how was it uh, that some individuals, anyway, suddenly seemed to relish the prospect of making their personal lives, not to mention the lives of others, an open book? By the end of the century, the commercialization of surveillance, along with the outflow of confessional talk, would prompt many to conclude that there was no longer any privacy in the United States, nor even any desire for it. Yet, uh, as we know, uh, privacy talk erupted with force once again in the 21st century, triggered, triggered by the arrival of NSA spying, big data, and startling exposés of just how well corporations and the state could know individual citizens. So that is the end of the story for now. <laughs> um, by following the path of the known citizen, I hope that we can better appreciate both the push and the pull of a knowing society and make sense of the demand both to be sheltered from view and to share and be seen that we see um, sometimes as conflicting. I think by uh, following the known citizen, we can also perceive major transformations, both in privacy and in the conditions of social life. We see how tangible uh, claims to privacy, property rights, and physical space um, became a different kind of claim as the 20th century progressed. Uh, claims about psychological freedom, decisional autonomy, and personal identity, expanding our sense of what privacy might be. Over the 20th century, there was also clearly a democratization um, in who was entitled to privacy, from the man of reputation in the late 19th century to a whole host of others who did not always succeed in um, gaining privacy, but certainly felt entitled to claim it. Juveniles, uh, welfare recipients, pregnant women, research subjects, and prisoners. Most dramatically, uh, we see the change um, in what people felt they would like um, or might even need um, to disclose. Um, the deepest and most closeted secrets of the Victorian uh, era moved out into the open after the 1970s, even as citizens became more protective of their data. This history helps us see uh, that virtual transgressions, unauthorized information flows, and government and corporate surveillance of citizens um, are not new. They are not um, our own. Uh, they uh, have a very long history. Uh, and that they have regularly provoked debates, um, quite profound ones, about the very nature and knowingness of modern American society. Given the number and range of parties that aspired to know them, Americans rightfully wondered what parts of one's body, personality, identity, biography, and data a person had ultimate claim to. Privacy from this angle begins to look less like a thing or a measurable quality than an index to an ongoing skirmish over the demands of the modern social order its rewards as well as its risks. Convinced that society's accountants know too much about us, today we understand that there can no longer be an unknown citizen. 
And today, as in the centuries past, it is the language of privacy that bridges the tension between expanding claims to personal inviolability of the sort that Warren and Brandeis argued for and advancing methods of infringing it between the desire to be let alone and the wish to be known. Who has the right to know what ought to be publicly known and what should remain unknown? These are the questions that American privacy debates of the past sought to settle, at least provisionally. They are an echo of Auden's concern about the unknown citizen and whether such a citizen could be happy or free. They are also our questions, ones I think we will be grappling with for the foreseeable future. Thank you very much.